At a little before 7 o'clock Thursday night, attorneys finished giving their closing arguments in the conspiracy trial of three Chicago police officers. They're accused of covering up for Jason Van Dyke and Laquan McDonald's killing. Laquan McDonald was a human being. He deserved due process and the law, and not to have police officers write false reports and shape a false narrative to justify his killing. Filing a false police report in order to protect a fellow officer from prosecution is not honorable. It's not sticking up for a colleague. It's a violation of the public trust. It's a violation of their oath of office. It's a violation of the law. This case isn't about violating public trust. It's about McDonald violating the laws. It's about law and order. Thank God we're in a courtroom. Thank God we are in a courtroom, finally. Finally. This is not a court of public opinion. Evidence matters here. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Before closing arguments, defense attorneys presented their case. They put on just one witness and entered 57 documents into evidence, mostly police records. That followed four days of testimony by seven prosecution witnesses. Officer Thomas Gaffney, former Officer Joseph Walsh, and former Detective David March are charged with obstruction of justice, official misconduct, and conspiracy to commit those offenses. We're going to dive into the closing arguments in a minute, but first we wanted to take a look at the major moments and evidence from the trial over the last week and a half with reporters Patrick Smith and Chip Mitchell. And we'll start with Patrick. He's at the courthouse right now. Patrick, this was a conspiracy trial. It was about whether these officers truthfully reported what happened the night Jason Van Dyke fatally shot Laquan McDonald. Now, in the Van Dyke trial, the defense team spent a lot of time on Laquan McDonald's actions. How much did that come into play in this trial? Well, it's interesting. The defense attorneys in this case were kind of split in how they um, handled Laquan McDonald, how they talked about Laquan McDonald. You know, you've got three defendants here and you've got four defense attorneys, really, who have been talking throughout the trial. Um, one of the attorneys, James McKay, he spent a lot of time talking about what he saw as McDonald's unlawful acts the night that he was killed, aggressive acts the night he was killed. It really seemed like he was relitigating that murder trial that we all saw where Van Dyke was convicted of second-degree murder. Following the law... I heard Ms. Holmes say that at least a couple of times. Following the law? Well, I'll say this. Following the law was a completely foreign concept to Laquan McDonald. The other attorneys in this case uh, took a different tack. They they really distanced themselves from doing that. There were moments where they explicitly talked about the fact that they weren't here to try to make Laquan McDonald seem dangerous or really talk about the shooting at all. You know, prosecutors are saying these officers exaggerated the threat that McDonald posed. And so basically the defense attorneys were arguing, no, they didn't exaggerate the threat. He he was a threat. That's why McDonald's actions that night were, were part of this trial, you know, in a similar way to the way they were part of the Van Dyke trial. In the Van Dyke trial, the jury found that Van Dyke wasn't justified in shooting Laquan McDonald. And they said Van Dyke's depiction of the night didn't match what we saw on the police dash cam video. How much of a role did that video play in this trial? 
Well, it was not played nearly as often as it was in the Van Dyke trial. You know, uh, and I think part of that is because this is a bench trial, which means the judge decides guilt or innocence, not a jury. You know, here, th- th- they didn't play the video over and over again like they did in the Van Dyke trial, but that video is a bedrock of the prosecution's case against these three officers. I mean, their their whole thing is that the reports the officers filled out are a lie, and they say, we know they're a lie because of this video, that this video disproves what they put in their police reports. Um, one of the times they did go through the video was with one of their witnesses, um, a Chicago Police Department sergeant. He's a trainer at the academy named Larry Snelling. They asked Snelling, do you see McDonald committing a battery in this video? Because that's what Gaffney and Walsh put in their reports. It's also what Van Dyke put in his report. From this one video, the only thing that you see is the subject walking on an angle away from the, away from the officers. Is there anything in your view that could remotely be interpreted as Mr. McDonald committing a battery on this video? No. That was the prosecution using the video to say these police reports are false. The way the defense used the video is really similar to the way that, that the defense for Jason Van Dyke used the video, which is to say it's just one perspective, it doesn't show everything, and it's not fair to judge the actions of an officer in the moment compared to seeing this video you know, in hindsight. Now, Patrick, someone we talked to for this podcast also got brought into this trial. He didn't testify, but he was actually removed from the courtroom at one point, and that's journalist Jamie Calvin. He's one of the first people to report on the discrepancies between the official police narrative and the facts of the Laquan McDonald shooting. Why did he come up in this case? Yeah, so we talked about Jamie Kelvin in uh, the last episode of the podcast because Kelvin was, as you mentioned, removed from the courtroom on the first day day of this trial. That's because he was subpoenaed by one of the defense attorneys who said he was planning to maybe use him to impeach or counter a civilian witness to the shooting. Um, The day after he was removed from court, his attorneys were sort of gearing up for an emergency appeal. Media organizations, uh, including WBEZ and the Chicago Tribune, we were we were preparing to, to, to file a brief to allow him back into the courtroom. However, the day after, uh, the defense attorney withdrew his subpoena, and Calvin's been in the courtroom throughout the trial. Did any prosecution witnesses stand out for you? Yeah, you know... Um, the first one who stood out to me was uh, police officer Joseph McGilligan. He was the partner of one of the defendants, Thomas Gaffney. It was McGilligan and Gaffney who were the first officers on the scene. They responded to the call of, of Laquan McDonald breaking into trucks um, and, and followed him for a few blocks before Van Dyke got on the scene and, and, and started shooting. Uh, and McGilligan was there to testify to the fact that he did not feel in danger and he did not think his partner, Thomas Gaffney, was in danger either. Even though, uh, after the fact, Gaffney reported that he was assaulted or battered by McDonald, which could only happen if he felt in danger from McDonald. One other, uh, one other witness who stood out was Officer Dora Fontaine. Um, she was on the scene the night of the shooting, and she said that Detective David March, that he changed what she told him. Specifically, she said that, that March put in his report that she saw McDonald raise his knife as if attacking Van Dyke. She says she did not see that happen, and she never said she saw it happen. She said that March lied about what she said. Um, and she talked about how since she's spoken out about that, um, other officers, she feels like they've turned on her and think that she's not sort of following the code of silence that we're all talking about. Other officers were calling me a rat, a snitch, a traitor. 
Um, they wouldn't back me up. What do you mean by they wouldn't back you up? If I was at a call and I needed assistance, uh, some officers felt strong enough to say that I didn't deserve to be helped. In cross-examination, defense attorneys brought out other testimony that she's given where, where her story about what she saw that night and what she said she saw has changed over time. Uh, you know, they told the judge that she lied to them. Okay, Patrick, thanks. Thank you. Alongside Patrick Smith at the courthouse is reporter Chip Mitchell, and he's been looking at prosecutor claims throughout the trial that there was a broader police conspiracy within the Chicago Police Department to protect Jason Van Dyke. Now, Chip, the prosecutors introduced evidence of a conspiracy that went much further than the trial's three defendants. Why was this important to their case? Well, Jim, prosecutors, they didn't have direct evidence of a conspiracy. So, like, they didn't have tape of a meeting where the defendants hatch a plan to cover up for Van Dyke. But this is actually typical of conspiracy prosecutions. And Illinois law allows proving a conspiracy through inferences and circumstantial evidence and even hearsay. And so the prosecutors, they they introduced a bunch of emails from within the police department in the months after the shooting. So, for example, there was a message sent 13 days after the shooting. It was from defendant David March's boss at the time, a sergeant named Daniel Gallagher. He was writing to his boss, a lieutenant named Anthony Wojcik. And in this email, Sergeant Gallagher claimed that Van Dyke did not have time to wait for backup or for a a taser before shooting McDonald, or as Sergeant Gallagher put it, before trying to stop or disarm the out-of-control threat. That's that's a quote. The same email from Sergeant Gallagher describes Van Dyke and his partner that night, Joseph Walsh, one of the defendants in this trial. Gallagher wrote that Van Dyke and Walsh were in retreat while McDonald was advancing toward them. And, of course, we know from the dash cam video that Van Dyke and Walsh were not in retreat. And then in this email, Sergeant Gallagher defends the 16 shots that Van Dyke fired. Here's a prosecutor reading from that email this week to a witness who manages records for the police department. Does Daniel Gallagher write to Anthony Wojcik, can't overkill a person who is still alive at the hospital? Yes. Does Daniel Gallagher write, we are trained to shoot until the threat is eliminated, defeated, or neutralized. Officer did exactly what he was trained to do. Yes. Does Daniel Gallagher next write, we should be applauding him, not second-guessing him? Yes. Now, Chip, both Sergeant Gallagher and the lieutenant here left the police department when their roles in this case were under scrutiny. And so did two of the defendants in this trial. And the third defendant is suspended and stripped of his police powers. But you found out one of the police officials that prosecutors are labeling a co-conspirator is still on duty. Tell me about him. Yeah, this week, prosecutors named a current police detective. It's Thomas McDonough, works on the north side. And the prosecutors read aloud some of his, his emails from 2015, just a few months after the shooting. Now, at the time, McDonough was assigned by the police department to work for the police union. So in this one email, um, the detective, this alleged conspirator, McDonough, he describes getting ready for a trip to Washington to meet with the head of a private group that raises money to defend cops facing charges. He wrote he'd be bringing a packet and that he had access to the dash cam video of the shooting. This was more than six months before the city released the video and before the public saw it and there were months of protests. 
Okay, so two days after Detective McDonough's meeting in Washington, he writes to Sergeant Gallagher and Lieutenant Wojcik, those same detective bosses who'd overseen the police investigation of the shooting. He wrote them about his Washington trip. Prosecutors asked their witness from CPD to read it. Hi, guys. I was in D.C. area and met with Ron Hosko regarding Van Dyke. Can you two gather any of the other items that he is looking for? Question mark. Hosko and his group are very excited about this case, and I think they will help Van Dyke immensely, period. Let me know your thoughts, period. Thanks, Tom. And the prosecutors pointed out that police department rules bar sharing information from within CPD for a non-CPD reason. Jen, Detective McDonough did not respond to our request for comment. A CPD spokesman declined to comment but said once the criminal proceedings are finished, internal affairs investigators will look to see whether cops violated rules. Chip, what did the defense have to say about this evidence? Well, the main thing defense attorneys did was they fought tooth and nail to keep the evidence out of the trial. They argued before and during the trial that prosecutors had failed to prove the existence of any conspiracy involving the three defendants. And so these emails by other police officials were inadmissible hearsay. But the judge, her name's Domenica Stevenson, we heard a lot about her in our last episode, she ruled that most of these exchanges could be part of the trial record. Okay, Chip, thanks a lot. My pleasure. We're going to bring in reporter Shannon Heffernan now. She was in the courtroom for the closing arguments, just a few feet from the podium where the attorneys spoke. Shannon, what big points did the prosecutors try to make? So Patricia Brown Holmes did closings for prosecution, and she kept using this phrase that this was black and white, like this was a simple and clear case. It boils down to what the defendants wrote on paper in black and white versus what's on video. It's a paper case. Report said one thing, video shows another. So it's clear these officers did something wrong. It's clear, it's straightforward, it's concise. She also repeated again and again that the only reason for officers to write what they wrote in the reports was to cover up for Van Dyke. There is no other innocent explanation. And that basically, in order to have a functioning legal system, you can't have police officers who do that. We wholeheartedly agree that being a police officer is a dangerous job. It's public service at its highest. We have the utmost respect for the thousands of police officers who serve and protect all of the people in this city. But along with that authority to serve and protect comes the responsibility as sworn officers to respect the law for all citizens. Our justice system is built on police officers following the law. Shannon, what about on the defense side? So as Patrick mentioned, there are three defendants. So that means there's three closing statements. And each lawyer emphasized different points. That makes sense. They are focused on their own clients who played different roles. But the points they made also work together to paint this bigger picture of police officers just trying to do their jobs. So I'm going to give you a little highlight from each of the lawyers in their closing statements. Let's start with James McKay. He represents David March. And his big thing was how can his client be accused of covering up the shooting when his client was the one who worked to preserve that dash cam video, the video prosecutors have relied on to build their case. He's saving video for you, for them, for the world. How fair is it, Judge, for David Marsh to be sitting here and the evidence he saved is being used against him? 
the evidence they rely on that he kept, he preserved. Memos are directed downtown to Mr. Perfetti's office. Save this stuff. How fair is that? And then there was Tom Breen. He represents Joseph Walsh. Now, the officers are accused of conspiracy, which means they were working together to cover up details about the shooting. And the prosecution has emphasized that the way we know that is because the reports are so similar. What Breen said was, well, yeah, these reports, they're called TRRs or OBRs, are going to be similar. They're talking about the same event. I mean, after all, Laquan was, in fact, swinging or swaying a knife. And yeah, maybe these officers did talk to each other about what happened that night. But the phrase he used over and over again was, consensus is not conspiracy. A police officer filling out a TRR or an OBR is not put in some isolated game show booth. You know from the form itself there has to be a sharing of information because the officer filling the TRR report out and the OBR report wouldn't know the answers to multiple questions that are in these forms. And what about the third defendant? So the third defendant, Thomas Gaffney, uh, Will Fahey represents him. And one major point he made is that it's not fair to nitpick at a few mistakes when someone did a good job overall. Remember, his client was one of the officers who followed Laquan McDonald without using any force. So if I'm to understand the state's state's theory with regards to Tom Gaffney, and Judge, I'm not suggesting I do understand it, but I think it goes something like this. I think it goes something like, thank you, Tom. Thank you for your professionalism. Thank you for everything you did out on that street. We need great officers like you who can take those actions and be patient like that to try to de-escalate very dangerous situations. But if I'm to understand this, what they're really saying is, after this exhaustive investigation of theirs, they think they found a mistake in one of Tom's reports. And so he finds himself before you, charged with a crime for possibly, and I'm saying possibly, Judge, a mistake on his officer battery report. How about that for some gratitude for his excellent police work and his honesty? So if you look at these three closings all together, what's the big picture here? I think the big picture that the defense is trying to paint is that these were officers who were doing their very, very best. And maybe they aren't perfect. They aren't robots. One of the lawyers actually said that. But they are arguing that none of that adds up to committing a crime. Okay, Shannon, thanks. Thank you. After closing arguments, Judge Stevenson said she'd take a couple of weeks to consider the evidence, and then she set a date to announce her verdict. So this case is order of court, December 19th, with, uh, it'll be for a ruling at 3 o'clock. Um, anything further, State? No, Judge. All right, everybody have a great night. I'll see you on December 19th. Court is adjourned. When Judge Stevenson announces her decision, we'll bring it to you. But until then, we're interested in hearing from you. 
We know people around the country have been following this case and listening to this podcast, and we'd like to know why. What do you think these trials mean for this moment in policing in America? How does this case resonate or not resonate with your town or city? Call us and leave your thoughts and stories. Our number is 888-915-9922. That's 888-915-9922. 16 Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.